I'm Krista Tippett. Today, with South African Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu on The God of Surprises, how his understanding of God and humanity has unfolded through the history he's lived. There's no question about the reality of evil, of injustice, of suffering. But, you know, at the center of this existence is a heart beating with love, you know, that you and I and all of us are incredible. I mean, we really are remarkable things that we are, as a matter of fact, made for goodness. This is Speaking of Faith. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett. I have been looking forward to having a conversation with Desmond Tutu for years. And in those years, the world has continued to evolve, and so has the perspective of this Nobel laureate and Archbishop Emeritus. Tutu helped galvanize South Africa's improbably peaceful transition from apartheid to democracy. Yet inequity and violence mark today's South Africa in old forms and new. Desmond Tutu was also a leader in the religious drama that moved the center of South African Christianity from complicity in social brutality to hastening its unraveling. Yet the Anglican Church of Desmond Tutu is now riven by a global religious drama around sexual orientation and leadership. We'll discuss all these things this hour. We'll explore how Desmond Tutu's understanding of God and humanity has unfolded through this history he helped shape, and even through his very present friendship with the Dalai Lama. From American Public Media, this is Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. Today, Desmond Tutu's God of Surprises. Desmond Tutu in the woods of southern Michigan, where he was on retreat. He disarmed me from the outset with his famously mischievous humor. I'd brought along a bowl of dried mangoes, having been told by his staff that he is, quote, mad about dried mango. And he noticed them as we were finding our seats before I could say anything. There we go. Uh, And I noticed, I mean, uh, you've got a glass of water, I've got a glass of water. But then you have dried fruit. Why, why do you rate dried fruit and I not? <laughs> I brought this for you because oh, you your be- office told us that you love dried mango. And oh, you, oh, you beautiful thing. Oh, <laughs> you are a star. <laughs> Can we, can we say a prayer first? Yes, please. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful people and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit and they shall be made and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Amen. This hymn of the Xhosa language, God Bless Africa, is the joint national anthem of modern South Africa. But when Desmond Tutu was born in 1931, it was an anthem of the anti-apartheid African National Congress. When the Dutch colonial Afrikaner Nationalist Party came to power in South Africa in 1948, it decreed white supremacy in perpetuity, codifying the policy of apartheid, which literally translates as apartness. Comprehensive separation and brutalization of the 80% majority population of non-whites became the law of the land. Desmond Tutu grew up, like other black children, in a ghetto township marked by deprivation, unlike the towns in which white children lived. He stresses that his childhood was not devoid of joy. Children adapt. He played with his friends. 
But there were many moments which he traces as early stirrings of his sense of injustice, experiences that reminded him and others, as he says, of their second, third, fourth-class citizenship, though they did not even have citizenship. I also wondered, as we began to speak, if Desmond Tutu's personal spirit of resistance might have roots in the Xhosa ancestry of his father. These were some of the earliest people to encounter and rebel against white intruders in the South African Cape some 300 years ago, the backdrop to all of the history Desmond Tutu has lived through and shaped. You know, they recently did, did a, a genome sequencing and found that through my mother, I'm related to the Sun people who are the earliest inhabitants of Southern Africa uh-huh. and, and probably some of the earliest human beings. But I, 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 I think, I mean, that um, the later resistance was because of various factors. Mm-hmm. You know, the people who influenced me, the schools that I went to. You know, at one time I, I, I worked for the World Council of Churches and mm-hmm. we were based in London. I came from Africa, there was someone from uh, Taiwan, there was someone from Malaysia, someone from the States, and and then someone from Latin America. And he introduced me to Latin American liberation theology. Uh And I came to visit for the first time in the United States and here encountered black theology. So all of that was a very significant part of what helped to open my eyes. Mm-hmm. Mercifully, there isn't anything like the so-called self-made person. <laughs> right. You had, you had <laughs> spiritual companions. Yes. I mean, there are more than there are more than that. I mean, there are people who helped to form me, mm-hmm. and then. Discovering that the Bible could be such dynamite. I've subsequently used to say uh, if these white people had intended keeping us under, they shouldn't have given us the Bible. <laughs> you know, because, whoa, I mean, it's, it's almost as if it is written um, specifically just for your situation. I mean, the many parts of it that that uh, were so germane, so utterly to the point for us. Uh, can you can you recall uh, one of those early discoveries of the Bible as dynamite? Some yeah. teaching that you suddenly saw as so relevant. Well, actually, right the, the very first thing. I mean, uh, when you discovered that apartheid sought to mislead people into believing that what gave value to human beings was a biological irrelevance, really, skin color or ethnicity. And you, you saw how the scriptures say it is because we are created in the image of God. Mm. Um, that each one of us is a God carrier, that no matter what our physical circumstances may be, no matter how awful, uh, no matter how deprived you could be, it doesn't take away from you this intrinsic worth. One saw just how significant it was Although I was a bishop, I, I was working now for the Southern Council of Churches and had a small parish in Soweto. The, most of my parishioners were domestic workers, not people who were very well educated. Uh, but I would say to them, you know, Mama, when they ask, who are you? You see, the white employer most frequently didn't use the person's name. They said the person's name was too difficult. And so most Africans were, women would be called Annie, and most black men, uh, really, you were boy. Mm. 
Uh, and and I would say to them, uh, when they ask, who are you? You say, me? I'm a God carrier. Hmm. I'm God's partner. I'm created in the image of God. And you could see those dearly old ladies as they walked out of church on on that occasion, uh, as if they were they were on cloud nine. <laughs> you know, they, they they walked with their backs slightly straighter, uh, and and yeah, it was a, it was amazing. I think much of the world, and this has to do with my profession of journalism as well. Yeah, experienced the events in South Africa those decades leading up to uh, yeah. the end of apartheid uh, primarily as a as a political as political happenings but there was a great religious drama at the yes. heart of it right um, so on the one hand the church the dutch reformed church the the, the primary yes. church in south africa sanctioned and sustained apartheid to near near the end and also as you say there was this parallel drama going on yeah. of religion, theology, the Bible, becoming a great force of liberation. Well, one one of the actually one of the wonderful things was how, in fact, we had this interfaith cooperation: mm-hmm. uh, Muslims, uh, Christians, Jews, Hindus. Um, and now, you know, when you hear people speak about, uh, disparagingly about, say, Islam, and you say they've forgotten, I mean, that uh, that faith inspired people to great acts of courage. Um, and was and was that building, that coalition, those friendships, were they building in those latter decades of the 20th century? Well, we... we you discovered, I mean, that the thing you were fighting against was too big for divided churches, mm-hmm. for divided religious community. Uh, and and each of the different uh, faith communities realized some of the very significant central teachings about the worth of a human being, about the unacceptability of injustice and oppression. Many times, actually, it was quite exhilarating. It was fun. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was that momentous occasion, I think, was it 1990, when there was the first conference in 30 years to bring together the Dutch Reformed leaders with these other churches. And um, there was this heartfelt apology. This is the 1990s, so things had started to break open, but uh, there was still a lot of potential for danger, right? Um, And, you know, here's here's what you you said. Um, We have been on a kind of roller coaster ride, reaching the heights of euphoria, that a new dispensation was was virtually here, and then touching the depths of despair because of the mindless violence and carnage that seemed to place the whole negotiation process in considerable jeopardy. And just as we were recovering our breath, the god of surprises played his most extraordinary and incredible card. (laughs) Did I say that? You said that. It's beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, God is a God of surprises. I mean, the uh, I've sometimes said uh, God's sense of humor is quite something, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, one a, a, an illustration of the sort of craziness they had dealt with somebody called Bears No Deer. He was an Afrikaner mm-hmm. who at one point uh, said, no, apartheid uh, can't be justified scripturally. And for this, he was uh, turfed out of his church. I mean, they they expelled him because they said he was uh, a traitor. 
And so he, he joined up with blacks and others who were opposing. When freedom came, there was a road in Johannesburg that had been named after D.F. Malan. In 1948, Malan became the first nationalist okay. prime minister. And so they had this D.F. Malan uh, driveway. <laughs> in 1994, 95, uh, the name was changed to Bears No Deer Highway. <laughs> I mean, you could you could almost imagine them in heaven, sort of rolling in the eyes. <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, Desmond Tutu's God of Surprises. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which he chaired, met formally from 1995 to 1998. The TRC, as it was known, was conceived as apartheid unraveled in the early 1990s. Its basic premise was that any individual, whatever he or she had done, was eligible for amnesty if they would fully disclose and confess their crimes. The commission investigated human rights violations by both architects and opponents of apartheid. Victims were invited to tell their stories and witness confessions. Many families came to know for the first time when and how their loved ones died. I wonder, in the years that followed and in your experience of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, what did you learn about why, as you said, one of the hardest things for human beings to do is to say, I'm sorry. I mean, what did you learn about forgiveness three-dimensionally that you didn't know before? Well, one was that I, I, was, I was amazed, first of all, at how powerful an instrument it is being able to tell your story. You know... I suppose psychiatrists understand that better than we. Just being able to tell your story, you could see in the number of people who for so long had been sort of just anonymous, faceless, uh, non-entities, just being given the opportunity, did something to rehabilitate them. Mm. But mm. it, more than this, it actually was a healing thing. I, we were, we had a young man, a black young man, who, who had been blinded by police action in his township, and he came to tell his story. When he finished, one of the panel, TRC panel, asked him, "Hey, how do you feel?" And a broad smile uh, broke over his face, and he was still blind, but he said. You've given me back my eyes. And you know, you, you felt so humbled that uh, people could feel that that was how the healing for him uh, would have taken place. But you know, one of the things that constantly amazed us was the remarkable magnanimity of people. All people, black, white, Africans, and Americans. I mean, human beings can leave you speechless, really. I mean, they can leave you speechless by the horrible things they do. Right. But they also leave you speechless with the incredible things. We saw so many times people who ought to have been bristling with bitterness and anger, when they meet the perpetrator, actually being able to embrace. Hmm. And you were asking about the difficulty. Yes, it is difficult. And when we started, we looked at the legislation, and the legislation did not require 
a perpetrator who applied for amnesty to express even remorse. And we, we were very upset and said, but I mean, why not say they've got to say sorry or something? Right. But we discovered, I mean, that actually the legislators were a lot smarter because had they insisted that it was a condition to uh, uh, get amnesty, each time somebody said, I'm sorry, I'm very sorry, we would have said, ah, he's just putting that on. Right. As it happened, despite the fact that it was not a requirement, when, when people were applying for amnesty, almost always they would turn to the victims or the, the survivors or the family if the person had been killed, and they would turn to them and say, please, we know it's very difficult, but please forgive. Uh, and... And as I say, al almost always the victims would. You know, in, in conversations I, I've had across the years with people who are around the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or involved in it, they, they also talk, though, about it was truth and reconciliation and that those are different things and that yeah. they also learned about the distance that has to be walked between truth and even forgiveness and and reconciliation, which seems to be so much, yeah. to need so much time. And I, I wonder where your, th your thinking and your experience is now on that. On, uh, has reconciliation come to South Africa? Or what, yes. what is the process that's playing itself out yes. now? I, I've always uh, given people the example uh, when they ask, that question, have you achieved reconciliation? And I say, just look at Germany. West Germany and East Germany were separated maybe, let us say, 50 years. Mm -hmm. They speak the same language. They are the same ethnic group. Go to Germany even today mm -hmm. and, and uh, ask, has reunification helped, are you reconciled? And it's amazing, I mean, to discover that uh, they are still alienated from one another. Now, that's people speaking the same language. There's mm -hmm. people who have been separated for about 50 years. We had this separation, uh, political separation for... Right. Three centuries. And it was a much more violent three, and three, brutal three, About 300 years. We now have 11 official languages. <laughs> so right, you can see, right. I mean, how many ethnic groups we have. To have expected that uh, we would achieve reconciliation uh, is the height of naivety, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, the, the, the act that set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has as its title the promotion of national unity and re reconciliation. Mm. It says the promotion. Right, right, right. It doesn't say the achievement. It's a process you're setting in motion. <laughs> uh, that uh, reconciliation is a process. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not something that is just an event. Mm -hmm. um, and we constantly were saying it is a national project mm. where every South African has to make their contribution, and it is a process. Not even the best commission could have achieved it for us. There is a lot of violence in South African society right now. And that, that violence is connected, as you say, to these 300 years that couldn't possibly be resolved yeah. by the commission. I mean, how do you think about what's happening now and that as part of this I don't know, project? Yes. I think, I mean, that we have 
very gravely underestimated the damage that apartheid inflicted on all of us. You know, um, the damage to our psyches, uh, the damage uh, that has made, I mean, it shocked me. Uh, I went to Nigeria when I was working for the World Council of Churches, and I was due to fly to Jos. And, and and so I go to Lagos Airport and I get onto the plane and the two pilots in the cockpit are both black and I I I just grew inches, you know, it was fantastic because we had been told that blacks can't do this. Right. And we we take, we have a smooth takeoff, and then we hit the mother and father of turbulence. I mean, we it was it was quite awful, uh, scary. Do you know? I can't believe it, but the first thought that came to my mind was, "Hey, there's no white men in that cockpit." Are those blacks going to be able to make it? And, well, of course, they obviously made it. Here I am. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, I had not known that I was damaged to the extent of thinking that somehow, actually, what those white people we had kept drumming into us in South Africa about our being inferior, about our being incapable, uh, it, it had lodged somewhere right. in me. Right. And so whilst we have had this process, which was an important process, we wouldn't be where we are without it. We certainly are needing a great deal more the most important being a recognition that we are damaged. Mm -hmm. We are wounded, uh, wounded people. We accepted it to some extent. I mean, the commission realized that uh, we were not a cut above fellow South Africans. Uh, we were but wounded healers. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we used to make sure when we had these public hearings, that the furniture that demonstrated it. We, we didn't sit on a platform higher than, uh, but we, we, we deliberately said, we sit on a level with the victims. On our website, speakingoffaith.org, watch a behind-the-scenes video of this entire encounter and conversation with Desmond Tutu while he was on retreat in Michigan. Also, download a show we created in 2003 on the truth and reconciliation process. That was with Pumla Gabodamata Kazela and Charles Villavicencio, two people who were at the heart of the TRC's work. And in that program, we included this archival audio of Desmond Tutu speaking at the National Press Club in 1999, the year after the TRC concluded its formal convenings. We, we had this remarkable process of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission when people who had suffered grievously whom you could have said had a divine right to being angry and filled with a lust for revenge, came and they told their stories. And so frequently, you wanted to take off your shoes because you said, I'm standing on holy ground. a short break, why European history gives Desmond Tutu hope for Africa, and what he means when he says, as he often does, that God is in charge. 
I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. Speaking of Faith comes to you from American Public Media. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org and by American Public Media, announcing Krista Tippett's new book, Einstein's God, Conversations About Science and the Human Spirit, available in bookstores now. Welcome back to Speaking of Faith, Public Radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. I'm Krista Tippett. Today, Desmond Tutu's God of Surprises. I'm with the South African Archbishop Emeritus and Nobel Laureate, exploring his long view of the history he's helped shape and how his understanding of God and humanity has unfolded through it. Before the break, he was talking about reconciliation as an ongoing national project, not something that was perfected and completed with the end of the truth and reconciliation process in 1998. I think a lot these days about colonialism, which, as you say, it's not just 50 years of apartheid. It's 300 years. Yeah. And um, it's so ironic because... Also, Western support for South Africa had to do with South Africa as a bulwark against communism. And we, 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 I mean, here I'm saying we in the West have forgotten this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when things get rough and, and you know, I mean, you, we also forget that we've been free for only about 16, 20, 16 years, yeah. 1994, and how long have you been free? Three, three hundred years, right. something. And you, uh, I've, I've sometimes said, well, you know, the history of of Europe of the West uh, gives me a great deal of hope. Yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I mean, when you think that. You've had two world wars. Mm-hmm. You've produced the Holocaust. You've <laughs> produced ethnic cleansing. You've had you've had dictatorships. I mean, in Spain, in Portugal, in in Greece. Um, yes. So I say, I mean, and look now. I mean, how you have advanced. Uh, uh, so th- there's hope for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> I, I wonder also, you were, is it right, you were 63 years old when you voted for the first time. What was that like? How do you describe falling in love? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I mean, people asked then and when we voted for the first time. It, it was an, an incredible experience. It was a, for, 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 for you going to the pilot box is really a political act. For us, it was a religious act. It was a spiritual Mm. experience Um, because, you know, you walked walked into into the polling booth one person with all of the history of oppression and injustice and and all the baggage that we were carrying, and you walk and you 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 make your mark and you put the ballot into the box, and you emerge on the other side and you you are a different person. Mm. You are transfigured. Mm. Now you actually count mm. in your own country. Uh, you, hey, <laughs> I mean, it, it really was a cloud nine experience. We were transformed from ciphers <laughs> into mm. persons. Mm. You know, one thing that I feel also runs throughout your writing is uh, is how freedom in terms of politics, I mean, this freedom to vote is absolutely something that you, you demanded and needed to demand. And yet you also knew people across the years who were free while they were imprisoned. And there's also the specter now of people who are politically free, but not 
not free in, I don't know, maybe the deepest Christian sense, for example. Um, yes. So I wonder, uh, you know, if you'd reflect a little bit on what, you, what you've learned about the limits of politics. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you've got prepositions. The, 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 the preposition from. You are free mm. from, and then you are free for. We have, we have got to being free from, which turns out to be one of the slightly easier things to get to do, although <laughs> it, it took so long. Yes. The f- being free for, I tell you, is tough. Mm. You know... Uh, so what is the freedom for what that you now wish for, for your people? I think many of us were involved. We often, I often say, you know what? We didn't struggle in order just to change the complexion of those who sit in the union buildings. The union buildings are something like your I mean, capital and mm-hmm. so on, yeah. Um, it wasn't to change the complexion. It was to change the quality of our community, mm. society, that we, we wanted to see a society that was a compassionate society, uh, you know, a caring society, uh, a society where you might not necessarily be madly rich, but you knew that you you counted. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've got... Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, we've got a number of the things, uh, sort of material, political things. Um, not all of them. I mean, we, we have levels of poverty at home that uh, are unacceptable. Uh, there's a crime, there's, right. there's disease. Um, we still do not, I think, have the kind of place where you say, I really am proud to be here. I really, I know that even when I, I, I don't have a big bank balance, uh, I count, I matter. Mm-hmm. What we have found is, is that um, original sin uh, actually doesn't know very much about uh, racial discrimination. Mm. Original sin infects all of us. Mm. I mean, when you see how so soon, I mean, people have become corrupt, Right. And, it, yeah, it, it leaves you feeling sad. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is Speaking of Faith from American Public Media. Today, Desmond Tutu's God of Surprises. Now retired as the Archbishop of Cape Town, Desmond Tutu remains busy. He consults with truth and reconciliation processes in other countries, founded an organization to help combat the spread of HIV, and often travels and speaks jointly with other world leaders, especially the Dalai Lama. He has become a somewhat controversial figure in the global religious landscape by insisting that sexual orientation, like racial equality, is a basic human right. And Desmond Tutu has recently published a book called Made for Goodness in collaboration with his youngest daughter, Mpa, who is herself an Episcopal priest. You know, words that you use, like hope, and hope as opposed to optimism. I'm with you there that it's different. And goodness, which is in the title of this new book you've written with your daughter, Mapa. Let's say, as a journalist, it's very hard to make those words as interesting and to make those words 
and the people you're pointing at and the situations that are attached to those words to make them seem as telling, as substantial as violence, injustice, evil, war. Have you thought about that? Uh, well, yeah, but I, I have to say, you know, um, if you are devoid of hope, then roll over and, and, and disappear quietly. Uh, hope says, man, hey, things can, things will be better because God has intended for it to be so. Hmm. You know, uh, at no point will evil and injustice and oppression uh, and all of the negative things have the last word. Uh, and yes, I mean, there's no question about the reality of evil, of injustice, of suffering. But, you know, at the center of this existence is a heart beating with love. You know, that you and I and all of us are incredible. I mean, we really are remarkable things mm. that we are, as a matter of fact, made for goodness. Uh, and it's not, it's not just a smart aleck thing to say. Uh, it's, it's just it's, it's a fact. I mean, because all of us, even when we have degenerated, know, know, I mean, that uh, the wrong isn't what we should be. Mm -hmm isn't what we should be doing, that we're fantastic. I mean, we really are amazing. You know, you told a story at a conference in 1990 about a man during the apartheid era in a, his village that had been demolished. People were being uprooted, and he prayed, thank you, God, for loving us. And you wrote, <laughs> I've never understood that prayer. But I think people might look at you and the life you've lived and also, you know, the bad things that continue to happen in South Africa and all yeah. in the rest of the world. <laughs> and say, this guy says the, this is a moral universe. And there's this line that you've just echoed. You've written this so many times. God is in charge. And they might also say, how can he say that? I mean, tell me, you've been saying God is in charge for a long time, for <laughs> decades. And so... What do you mean when you say that? And has what that means to you, has that changed? Has that evolved? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, you must add that I've sometimes said to God, it would, be, it would be nice for you to make it slightly more obvious that you're in charge. <laughs> but don't you believe this? I mean, when you, when, you've been, when you encounter somebody good, just take the Dalai Lama. Right, your friend, the Dalai yes. Lama. Yes, just take the Dalai Lama. Now, this is someone who's been in exile for over 50 years. How should he really be? I mean, he's, he's missing his beloved Tibet. He's missing his people. He's been made to live a life that he wouldn't really want to live. Uh, by rights, I mean, he, he, when you meet him, you expect somebody who is bitter, who, if you mention the Chinese, uh, will wish the worst possible to happen to them. But you meet him, He's, he's actually quite mischievous. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's, he's fun, he's laughing, and people flock to hear him. And, and, and you know, I mean, he, he doesn't even speak English properly, you know. 
and they still flock to hear him. So, so I'm not. I'm not. No, no. I mean, I, re, I must tell you, I'm not. No, no. I'm not. Actually, I'm not jealous. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, look at the number. I mean, he can fill Central Park. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, this is another question I, I wanted to ask you. I've talked about, you know, how has your sense of reconciliation and, uh, developed, and you know, how has your sense of Christian truth, you know, evolved through experiences you've had coming out of apartheid with the Nobel Peace Prize. For example, your friendship with the Dalai Lama, this great Tibetan Buddhist yes. leader. What's that? Do you, that? do you really think that God would say, Dalai Lama, you really are a great guy, man? Sure. What a shame you are not a Christian. <laughs> somehow don't think so. I, I think, I mean, God is just thrilled uh, because no faith, not even the Christian faith, can ever encompass God, I mean, or, or even be able to communicate who God is. Only God can do that. This is a big subject introduced right here at the end, but it does, does it strike you the irony that in many ways the British were very complicit in this 300 years that your country yeah, is now yeah. recovering from, and you are an archbishop in the Anglican Church. Isn't that an example of God's it, sense it, of humor? It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And that church now globally is very divided over issues of sexuality, and you have applied your experience in apartheid in a pretty provocative way um, yes. in terms of where you come out on that. Well, you know, uh, there are, yes, there are, there are many um, in, in, in Africa, in the Anglican Church there, who hold views that I wouldn't hold myself um, over this uh, and and I've often said, it's, it, what a shame. I mean, well, really, what a disgrace that the Church of God, in the face of so much suffering in the world, in the face of conflict, of corruption, of all of the awful things, what is our obsession? Our obsession is not ministering to a world that is aching. Our obsession is about sexual orientation. I'm sure, I mean, that the Lord of this church, looking down at us, must weep and say, Mm. just what did I do wrong now? Because our, our, our church has been, in many ways, wonderful. I mean, you know, in, in, in its being comprehensive. It, right, it, it, right, it, right. It, it's something that we've boasted about, the comprehensiveness of our church, where we see we hold points of view that are often diametrically opposed. Right but we remain in the same family. So your work continues, your work of reconciliation and... No, I'm retired. (laughs) (laughs) I'm proud, I'm proud, proud to be an African, African like you. That's why they say Black is beautiful. That's why they say. Black is beautiful. You can join visually in my playful encounter and conversation with Desmond Tutu from start to finish on our website. Along with video, we've also produced a streaming playlist of all the beautiful and evocative music of this hour. Some of the soundtrack, if you will, of South Africa's vivid culture and history. I actually began talking with Desmond Tutu about some of this music after our interview ended. I asked him about one Kosa Christian hymn in particular that I'd read was played at his 50th wedding anniversary celebration. 
He couldn't immediately remember how it goes, and he and a colleague began to trade snatches of lyric and melody back and forth across the room. I love that. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Hear more on our podcast and see more on our website. That's speakingoffaith.org. Speaking of Faith is produced by Colleen Scheck, Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, and Shuba Bala. Our producer and editor of All Things Online is Trent Gillis. Special thanks this week to the Fetzer Institute. Kate Moose is the managing producer of Speaking of Faith, and I'm Krista Tippett. Yes, yes. Speaking of Faith is supported by the Fetzer Institute, sponsor of Karen Armstrong's Charter for Compassion. You can learn more at Fetzer.org. Additional support comes from the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And the George Family Foundation, funding innovative ideas in integrative medicine, education, and spirituality in everyday life. Speaking of Faith is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. We shall dance to the rhythms of the freedom. Next time, we visit the world's premier monastic manuscript library, a place where the relationship between past and present is itself revealed in a new light. Please join us. American Public Media. 